imagine a better world we can all work towards? What if all children can look forward to a bright future full of opportunities? What role can we play towards realizing that vision of a better world for the many? Welcome to the IKEA Foundation What If podcast series. In the build-up to our 10th anniversary celebration in June, we'll be talking to some of the inspirational guests who will be speaking at the event. In these podcast series, we will be exploring solutions to some of the big ideas and challenges that we face today. I'm Altaf Makhiawala from the IKEA Foundation, and I'm your host today. In our very first podcast, I'll be talking to Steve Howard. But who is he? I've spent my life working on sustainability. Uh, I set up a climate change NGO called the Climate Group. I worked on Steve is a TED issues, presenter and former chief sustainability officer at IKEA. Among many, many other things, Steve set up the We Mean Business Group, which the World Economic Forum describes as the leading climate change coalition of organizations and businesses which helped support the Paris Climate Change Agreement. There was a a People's Climate March that was done before the Paris Climate Change Agreement. It it was in New York, and it was fantastic. I I had to say, I went with uh, the the IKEA group CEO. I was was CSO, Chief Sustainability Officer at the time there, and a few of us went from from IKEA in New York. And uh, you spoke to people from across America, mostly. I mean, there were people from around the world, but mostly from across America. And there were regular people, you know, people that were concerned about the future. And... uh, you know, incredibly impressive. 600,000, 650,000 people. That created a political moment in time. Politicians took notice, business leaders took notice. Across the world, rallies have been held to draw attention to climate change ahead of a UN For Steve, the recent climate change protests are a real source of inspiration, especially the fact that school kids and students have been taking the lead. The power of kids, kids have moral authority. You know, if anybody owns the future, children do, and young people do, and for them to say to adults and to demonstrate really seriously, you guys are not doing enough, I think is an incredibly potent message. I've worked on this for decades, um, this issue, and it even made me feel, uh, I was sat there thinking, should I feel guilty? Have I, have, I, have, I, have I not done enough? Have I not pushed enough? Have I not pushed hard enough on this? And we've won some... You know, we have won some battles, but we are losing the war. So I think the youth is absolutely right to call us out on this. So as a leading expert in the field of climate change, how does Steve Howard see the scale of the climate challenge that we are facing today? And how worried should we really be? There's three numbers uh, that I think are important. So uh, the Paris Climate Agreement had an ambition to be well under two degrees, if possible, under one and a half degrees warming and we've had just over one degree warming now Um, you can already see the extreme weather effects that we're seeing the flooding the cyclones the 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 way mozambique has just been ravaged by storms in just recent recent days Uh, the the really epic scale forest fires are doubling in the area of forest fires burning etc that's the one degree so at one and a half degrees there's 1.5 billion people at risk of society-defining extreme weather events. 
multi-sector, so food and agriculture, flooding, infrastructure, superstorms, etc. Uh, so 1.5 billion people are at risk at just one and a half degrees. When we get to two degrees warming, the estimate is that's close to three billion people. So you double the number of people who's, whose lives are going to be shaped by extreme weather events. Um, and if you get to three degrees, which is kind of where we're heading now, it's, the estimate is 4.6 billion. So at that point in time, that will be half the world's population living lives defined by climate change. We are already seeing very real-world impacts. When you see the sort of impacts that the uh, the Philippines has had with 15 million people impacted by the two typhoons there or the event that's just happened in Mozambique, when you have... Uh, emerging uh, countries that are coming out of poverty, that are still de- still developing, that are poorer countries. Um, these are catastrophic events uh, that really arrest development. I know this all sounds a bit gloomy, but I did say at the beginning that this podcast was about seeing problems for what they are. But we're also very much about action and solutions. But Steve isn't naive. He knows it often takes a threat to get us to move in to action. He talks about the need for both fear and hope. So those those sort of the focus now, you know, this has been framed as it's the race of our lives. So this is why I think fear and hope. Hope is the fact that we can deliver this with renewable energy. We can reinvent super healthy, sustainable agriculture. We can rewild areas and bring back large areas of forest. Uh, we can be live within the limits of our planet and provide and thrive for everybody, but the risk is extreme. Today I'm appealing for leadership from politicians, from business and scientists, and from the public everywhere. We have the tools to make our actions effective. What we still lack, even after the Paris Agreement, is the leadership and the ambition to do what is needed. And what makes all of this even more disturbing is that we were warned. Scientists have been telling us for decades, over and over again. The UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, sounding a warning at the end of last year. But what about the lack of leadership he mentions? How are businesses shaping up when it comes to climate change? And what about the environmental movement and philanthropic organizations like our own IKEA Foundation? First, business. No one should be demonized, says Steve Howard, but we do need to recognize the negative role played by some and the lasting effect of that. So there was deliberate, purposeful misinformation campaigns for decades, well-funded by a relatively few um, highly irresponsible people. I mean, I know lots of people in the fossil fuel industry and there's been very good leaders there. So it's, we don't want to demonise that entire sector. There's good, hard-working people who provide energy. And for a long time, it was the absolute base of society. But there was a group of people who were, I would say, malevolent and they, you know, they deliberately misinformed people. And part of the media swept along with that. You know, and we have you know, heads of state now who still question incredibly robust science as a consequence of that so it's uh, let's maybe the environment could have done a better job maybe maybe philanthropy could have done more maybe people shouldn't have been so complacent about uh, you could you, we could say things but actually it was 
um, like in tobacco, you know, the, the tobacco industry fought uh, tooth and nail to put a disinformation campaign. I remember, I think, one quote was, um, you know, doubt is our friend. And the same tactics we use around climate change to sow doubt. And I have argued with paid professional climate change deniers. I've argued with them on the radio, on the TV stations, in the streets. And that's all these people pay to do this. So they're responsible. It's not the environment movement. Away from the deniers, there are of course many businesses working really hard to find solutions today and paving the way for these positive business forces in some of the most difficult areas of the world is philanthropy. The, the, the things that come together very nicely around climate, solving climate change, so uh, providing energy access for, for everybody, good smart development, you know, the best sort of tools we have are to help people that are in extreme poverty and poverty have access to the best technology as they come out of poverty. And, and that will be a virtuous circle. But those can be in some places, it can, it can be in hard-to-do places where you know, the, the private sector won't go in first by itself and you need philanthropy to help go in there and prove that things are possible and, and lose money and take risks uh, supporting people. And philanthropy can be a real catalyst for innovation, especially with a focus on something like renewable energy. It's interesting as you look at some of the companies that are starting now, they're looking at, you know, at, nobody wants electricity. People want the things electricity provides. They want light, they want cooling, they want to be able to charge their phones, they want to be able to ideally watch TV, listen to radio, and access the internet. And... Um, the, some of the sort of microgrid, mini-grid companies that are working in very poor communities are actually thinking really smartly about this. How are they providers of those services on a, on a fast path to development for people? And I think everywhere you've seen it where people get stable energy, where they get energy suddenly, where the lights can stay on in the evening, where you can power basic equipment, where you can have communications that are reliable, um, then people get entrepreneurial people's income increases dramatically. So I, I think you need to have, we look at this as a, a sort of what's the, the rapid pathway for, for development through this. And I think that's, there's nothing more important. So that's one thing that philanthropy could do. This is me. I'm burning up and I'm melting. I'm drowning yet dying of thirst. Sometimes I struggle to breathe. I am crying floods of tears, and I am not alone. We must act globally to deal with the That's a fragment from one of our films from the Better World Starts at Home campaign, which is currently running in IKEA stores worldwide. This campaign focuses on renewable energy solutions in some of the communities that need it most today. And in their communities, they can lift themselves out of poverty. They can build better schools, hospitals, and run businesses. All this makes them less vulnerable to my changing climate. Renewable energy is a major focus for us at the IKEA Foundation. We want to be at the forefront of providing renewable energy access for all. But just how ambitious should we be? 
I think we need an incredibly high level of ambition, a shared level of ambition. And we say we should say it's 2019, um, you know, 11 years to get to one and a half degrees. So we need to set the world on track to stay under one and a half degrees warming. And we need to do that by 2030. We've got just over a decade to do it. We should be bound together by that mission. Because if we're not going to lead, then who is? And if IKEA Foundation's not going to stand for that, who is? And uh, that's what future de- generations would demand of us. Uh, that's if, uh, if nature could speak, that's what nature would ask of us. And what about at the individual level? What can we do to help to tackle climate change in our everyday lives? Climate action, it, it, it can be in the small things as an individual, so choosing to eat less meat, simple things, swapping out light bulbs for LEDs if you've got a, if you've got any old-fashioned light bulbs, cycling somewhere rather than getting the car, simple things that you make everyday choices differently. Uh, it can be advocating in your organisation for the changes your organisation can make. Your organisation can switch to renewable energy, it can look at the products and services it provides, uh, it can help people commute differently. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, or you can take on a, a stronger role. You can look at how do you become engaged in movement building and you can support organisations. You can support organisations like WWF or like the Climate Group or get, you get, in, get involved in organisations like that. I, I have to say I'm incredibly impressed by the youth now that have taken on the climate movement. And uh, so you've got when you have a 15-year-old Swedish girl uh, starting a, a global movement, and I think there's been more than one and a, one and a half million people have mm-hmm. been on the climate strikes now. And um, I know you'd say, well, you wouldn't want to generally encourage uh, young people to take out time from education, but if ever there was a cause that they should for their future, this is one. So you can be an advocate, you can be a campaigner, you can protest, you can just choose to have a veggie burger or a veggie IKEA veggie meatball instead of a meat one. So it's, that's climate action for me. So action is possible, and yet it can seem so small in the face of such huge challenges. Can we really turn the tide? If you look at the last century, so I often refer to my uh, grandma was born in 1901 in Manchester in a house that had no electricity, no telephone, no running water. Um, women didn't have the vote. There was no uh, air travel. Uh, that The world was... Uh, uh, a very big place, and her world was very small within it. Um, and by the end of her life, you know, we were networked together through telecommunications. Women had the vote. We'd had the civil rights movement. Um, now we've progressed, and we've got, you know, uh, actually we're moving towards much more universal equality in many countries. Uh, and we can see this future. It's there for us to grab with both hands, where we've actually solved most environmental problems where we've ended air pollution where we have clean streets where nature's coming back and thriving around us where people are eating healthy sustainable diets um, where we've actually conquered our biggest challenge of climate change and then we can focus on everybody achieving their very best potential to build a, a future for all of us so you can be hugely hopeful about the future that's absolutely what we're trying for
I still remember the day in school when our teacher told us that the world population had become three billion people. I am today launching a brand new analog teaching technology that I picked up from IKEA. This box, this box contains one billion people. And our teacher told us uh, Hans Rosling is a, 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 a unfortunately passed away, but a brilliant communicator. He's done TED talks. I'd recommend them. But he talked. I, actually, when my son was ten, we watched uh, Hans's TED talk, and Hans mentioned um, the you could be a, an optimist or a, a pessimist, or you could be a possibilist. And uh, my son looked at me and he said, "Daddy, you're a, you're a possibilist." So as a possibilist, you look at there's many possible futures some really, really, really terrifying ones, and then some ones that are saying, wow, fantastic futures. They're all possible. So pick the future you want and work to make that happen. Thanks for listening in on our first IKEA Foundation podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it. Do you have a question for Steve? Let us know what it is, and we'll ask him at our anniversary event in June please get in touch with us through our Facebook page. In our next podcast, we'll be talking to Rachel Kite, the Chief Executive Officer for Sustainable Energy for All. She's also a special representative of the UN Secretary General for Sustainable Energy and co-chair of UN Energy. We had a great conversation. Don't forget to tune in. And what if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? My name is Altaf Makhiawala. Thanks for listening. <laughs>